0: We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 13, which is the last chapter in the book. We're going through our sermon series with Ezra and Nehemiah and Ezra, we rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah, we rebuilt the wall. And yet we will see today there's still a serious problem with God's people. I want to start off by just asking some questions I want you to think about. And there's a lot of ground that we're going to cover today. So, in Nehemiah, in his, the redemptive historical narrative, Jesus has not come yet. Right? That happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're still about 400 years out from Jesus coming to earth. And they are under what is called the Old Covenant the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments do a great job showing us how we don't meet the standard God has set now I also want you to understand that's still grace God hasn't created us and say I hope you figure it out God has created us and told us how to live and it's for His glory but we are not under the old covenant we are under a new covenant and you can remember it with the lord's supper jesus is with his disciples he says i'm giving you a new covenant which is my blood poured out for you so the old covenant shows us a standard we can't meet the new covenant shows us how in christ we meet those requirements And so I want us to be careful because when you come to Nehemiah 10, you see that the people are committing themselves to the law, which is a good thing, to following God. But if we do so in our own strength, we will still be eternally separated from God. Because we cannot live out the law of God, we don't meet the standard. And so I want us to, to have that in the back of our minds as we navigate through this chapter. I also want you to think about commitment. What or who are you committed to this morning? You have made a commitment this morning to get up and get here. Some have decided they are more committed to sleep. Every day, you're driven by your commitments. I think there's... Two types of commitments we gotta be careful of. One, we live in a low commitment society. For instance, did a little research. How many jobs do you think the average person in the United States has in their lifetime? Over double digits? 12. 12 jobs, right? If they don't like something, we'll move on. Sometimes you just need to change the scenery. Sometimes you figure out something's not for you. Average employee stays with their employer four and a half years. We had five teachers this past year leave Holmes High School. They said teaching is not for them. Then I asked the questions (laughs) to our students, how committed are you to your education? What does your attendance say about How committed you are to education? What does your behavior say about how you are committed to education? How committed are you to marriage? How committed are you to church? I was talking to uh, a former staff member of Holmes High School, and he explained it to me this way. He says, I was looking for a job when I found this one. Not really committed. So how do we make long-term commitments deep commitments, and a low-commitment culture. But then on the other side, we also have the crazy committed. Used to be the shirts, baseball is life, the rest is just details, basketball is life, the rest is just details, whatever it is. If you go to a soccer field, basketball facility, a volleyball court, you will see how committed parents are to their children's athletics. It is a $40 billion industry every year in the United States. 50% of parents spend over $500 on just a fall sport, which is usually soccer or football. Cross-country, probably not as expensive. But 20% spend over $1,000. If you look at AAU, it's not a surprise. Crazy committed. Some of you are crazy committed to your job. 70-hour, 80-hour work weeks. What are you committed to this morning? Who are you committed to this morning? Because Jesus has a lot to say about commitment. One commitment that will take care of every other commitment is this. A man or woman completely committed to Christ will have all other commitments in order. If you say, I'm going to follow Jesus every other area of your life will fall into place. Or, as Paul put it, fellas, you could help me with this, the memory verse that we've had a couple of weeks ago, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does commitment look like? In Matthew 16.24 it says, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. So you can't put yourself first. You can't be committed to you. Is what Jesus is saying. And then to take up your cross is to die to self. Jesus has to be your commitment. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This isn't half-hearted commitment. Or Matthew 19, 21 and 22, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Why? Because he was a person of great wealth. What was he committed to? His wealth. You have dueling commitments in your life. Jesus will have no rival. Be committed to him. Or, with his disciples, this is what Jesus had to say in Mark. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people at once they left their nets and followed him when he had gone a little further he saw James the son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay he called them they left their father in the boat with the hired men and followed him that's commitment that's commitment i worked with uh, my dad and actually my brothers worked with me in the lawn care I would have loved for Jesus to say hey come and follow me leave those mowers behind I was waiting for that call waiting for that just a little bit late here but you see the professions of the disciples were in the hands of Jesus family members were second to Jesus I think it's a good picture of commitment what's your highest commitment may it be this Paul in Philippians eight says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That's what commitment looks like. So here's my question for you this morning. Are you committed to Jesus? Are you committed to Jesus? All right, let's pray and then we'll dig into the text. We've got some work to do. Father, I thank you for gathering us here this morning. No one is here by accident. You have a message for your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you move. I pray you fill us with your spirit. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us leave changed because we have heard from you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we'll start off with Nehemiah 9, and we'll go back to verse 31. And what we read is, But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So this is very, very important. Because our commitment to Christ requires a relationship with Christ. You cannot be committed without a relationship. And to start a relationship with Christ is to cry for compassion. It is to call on grace. And this is what the people of God are doing. Verse 31, your great mercy. Later on, your gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, now therefore our God, great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. You see how Nehemiah is pleading with God for his mercy. Don't treat us as our sins deserve. Treat us according to your compassion. Treat us according to your grace. And then later on in verse 37, it says, because of our sins... It's abundant harvest, goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So it starts out with a call for mercy, and then he explains how we're still subjects living in the promised land. This isn't how it's supposed to be, but we're here because of our sin, and we are in great distress. That's a cry for compassion. Do you see the desperate situation? Do you feel the distress that Nehemiah experiences here? Until you do, you will never cry out to God for mercy. Are you desperate for God's mercy? Let's lay this out just a a little bit more. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us, deserve to be in the presence of God none of us deserve a relationship with God in Romans he keeps going 5 8 but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners while we didn't want anything to do with God while God wasn't on our radar while we didn't obey while we didn't earn favor while we were still sinners what did what happened what did God do Christ died for us in Romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then this is where it becomes application. If you're sitting here in your sin, you are separated from God, but you don't have to stay there. In Romans ten nine, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's commitment, follow him as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from your sin. You won't be separated from God. You'll be with Him for all eternity. And then Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that you? Have you ever called on Jesus to save? In Matthew 9, 10 through 11, Jesus is gaining attention. And I want you to feel this passage. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he had just called Matthew. Talk about commitment. Matthew had to leave being a tax collector. He had no idea how he was going to make a living. And yet he's following Jesus and all he knows is to invite his friends to come and follow Jesus. And yet Matthew and his people are known for their sin. These aren't good guys. By the world standard, these are evil men. And yet Jesus says, nope, I'm changing you. And so Jesus having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked this disciple, "Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" On hearing this, Jesus said, "It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means: I desire mercy, not sacrifice." You know what that means? You don't earn God's favor Right? You can't earn it with sacrifice. You only earn it by pleading for mercy. And now here's the awesome part. For I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And you want to know what the Pharisees missed? They were sinners separated from God, they thought they met the standard. And you know, the, the prodigal son is the same thing. Right? You have a dad who's in this story, in the parable, uh, he represents God you have this son who says man dad I wish you were dead because if you were dead at least I get your stuff and the father honors that request and says here here's half of my stuff and the son goes and lives it up and parties and wastes all the money and then he becomes desperate starts eating the stuff he's feeding the pigs with this brother is gone he is desperate but what does he say he says when he came to his senses he's going to go back to his dad and ask for a job he'll rely on the grace and mercy of his father, right? And so he runs back to dad, and as dad sees him, what does he do? Runs towards him. Do you see that picture? Do you feel that desperation? And I don't know what your view of God is. You might think, man, I'm I'm too bad. I've done too many things that are, are wrong. If you knew all the things I've done and thought you wouldn't be saying that. God does know. And I promise you this. When you cry out for mercy, God will come running. That's what Jesus came to do. He laid his life down. I promise you, the blood is thicker than your sin and will cover all of your unrighteousness. Then you have a Another story that Jesus tells, and he's, he's with the Pharisees, right? And these guys had it together. If it was today, they'd be in church every Sunday. They'd be here early. They'd stay late. They'd make sure you saw them praying up front. They'd make sure you noticed how much they were giving. Like, these guys were together. And Jesus shares this story about those who thought they could be justified by what they did. So there's two people came into a, the temple. Tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee goes down front and says this prayer for God. He goes, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, adulterers and killers and robbers and even this tax collector. I thank you that I fast twice a week and give alms. Thank you. Amen. But the tax collector doesn't even come to the front, stays in the back, bows down, beats his chest, cries out to God, have mercy on me. And then Jesus asked the question, who do you think went away justified before God? justified before God. It was the tax collector who pleaded for mercy. That's a beautiful picture. That could be your story. And I promise you that's my story. Because I didn't meet the standard. Just like like in Nehemiah's day, the people didn't meet the standard. And there's a few things I I want to to try to be as clear as we can here. I, I think some people in here you have the wrong picture of the standard. And, and this is what I, I mean. Uh, you know of people that are very wicked. Right? It's like the, the Pharisee. Think I'm not like that person, that person, that person. And by comparison, you would consider yourself morally good. Right? At least I didn't cuss out the teacher. At least I didn't punch my boss. At least I didn't run over so-and-so right? I didn't kill anybody. I haven't cheated on my wife. I'm basically a good person, but the problem is people next to you are not the standard. God is the standard, and he is holy and perfect. Perfection is the standard, and when you're next to Jesus, you'll see how wicked your sin is. I'll use this illustration. It falls way short, in high school, I was a decent basketball player. I thought I was decent, right? I, I made it to college, played basketball there, and I thought, oh, I'm okay. I get to start every once in a while for this team, and then we went and played a team that had a Division I transfer. You wanna know what I realized? There's levels to this thing. By comparison, I'm not very good at basketball compared to this D1 transfer. And you wanna know why he was now at a Division Three instead of a D1? He wasn't getting playing time. Because by comparison, the guys playing whooped them on the basketball court. There's levels to this. The same is true in our holiness. There's two levels. There's perfection, and then there's us. And we're nowhere close to the standard. So what do you do? What do you do with it? God set the standard, we don't meet it. And we're desperate for God. He created us to be in relationship with him. You cry out for compassion. You call out for God's grace. And guess what you receive? Grace. You can be forgiven. Your sins can be wiped clean. So number one, cry out for compassion. Number two, be committed to Christ. And this is where you get to chapter 10. You see the names. It represents the entire community. Make this commitment. And you can, you can see this. There's several areas that they tackle. But what I want you to see, uh, the, the three areas are the major issues that they're dealing with. But it's a separating from the people to follow the law of God. You see this in verse 28. They separate themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Nehemiah ten twenty nine. An oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Right? This is a commitment that they're making. Verse 34, chapter 10. Families will live according to the word, as it is written in the law. They're trying to line up to the Bible. Nehemiah ten thirty six, as it is also written in the law, we will, and then fill in the blank. They are trying to obey. They're going back to the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. and They're saying, we want to be in covenant with you, God. And we will obey and we will follow. And I think this is a good question for us right now. Do we hunger for obedience? So Wednesday night. You're going through the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Or Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort. To live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Or, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Is there a hunger for obedience in your life? do you care about what God has called you to and it's every area of your life your relationships your work your thoughts God has a word for it will you bring it under the word of God under the authority of scripture will you obey and then what is our hope for obedience do you have a hunger and then what is our hope because this is what happens In Nehemiah chapter 9, you have a picture of the Old Testament commentary. And we went over this last week, and it's just up and down, up and down. God delivers them out of Egypt. They rebel against God. God gives them grace in the wilderness. They rebel against God. God brings them into the promised land. They rebel against God. God sends them into exile, but they rescue. But when they get back to the promised land, they rebel. Nehemiah, Ezra, they build the temple, they build the wall, they make this commitment. What do you think happens? You think that's the end of the story? Or do you think they rebel? Well, let's look here. Number one, let's look at their commitments. First commitment was a commitment to marriage. Nehemiah 10.30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. This is for following God. When you get married, two become one. And one cannot follow two different gods. And so when people were marrying, they were saying, hey, you follow your God, I'll follow my God. What does that mean for your children? You cannot live out the word of God. And so Nehemiah is saying, why would you marry an unbeliever? Why would you go after someone who doesn't love God? Those are dueling commitments. And that's good wisdom for today. For the single people in the room, look for someone who is devoted to Christ that's the type of relationship you want that's who you want to marry it's a worship issue as James Hamilton he put it this way this commitment not to marry one does not worship Yahweh pertains to every familial household obligation by boiling down their commitments to these three and we'll go over the other two in just a second to these three obligations the covenanters identified overarching concerns These obligations committed them, all other matters of obedience to the law. If both parents were followers of God, they would train their children in the Torah. This would lead to keeping the Ten Commandments as the law was taught and lived in the home. Marriage was vital. But then also, so was the Sabbath. You see this in verse 31. Keep the Sabbath day, keep the Sabbath year. If you don't work for a year, You give the field a rest. Who do you have to trust to provide? God. This is a trust issue. And then you have the temple. And this is verses 32 to 39. Nehemiah is very concerned with the temple because in it, you offer the sacrifices, you bring in the wood, to offer the sacrifices to enjoy the presence of God. And so these three things they were committed to, they spelled it out. And they're like, yes, we, we want the blessings and we want the curses with the oath because we're going to keep the oath. And then guess what happens? In chapter 13, all three of these areas are broken. They're marrying whoever they want to. They're working on the Sabbath and the temple is neglected. In three chapters. And this is a people who realize what the cost of disobedience is. They just came from exile. The cycle continues. It had been a thousand years since God had called them out of Egypt, and yet the pattern continues. You ever watch the cartoon Wild E. Coyote? Sometimes, I'm reminded of this in in the people of God, right? So so they're trying to grab on to God. They're trying to grab on in obedience to the law, and yet they keep falling. Falling. Wiley E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, 40 episodes, Coyote tried over 260 traps, 260 types of traps. The boulder drop was attempted 12 times, the catapult with the boulder 11 times, dynamite rocket five times, and anvil three times. Coyote should have died around 341 times in these 40 episodes. Total injuries, 95 injuries from falling, 73 from blowing up, 70 smashed by the anvil or boulder, 43 times ran over by something like a train, and three times he was electrocuted. The most violent episode was titled, Beep, Beep. That was episode two. The poor coyote was injured 20 times in one episode. Just can't do it. Never caught the road run. You see, when the standard is perfection, we can't do it either. Do you see why we need to cry out for compassion? We don't meet the requirements, so what are we to do? Well, this is where the good news comes into play. Jesus changes the cycle. This is what we read a little bit earlier. And now listen, I know this is a lot of reading, but I need you to hear the words in hebrews 10 1 through 4 it says the law which is what nehemiah is dealing with old covenant the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves for this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship you can't sacrifice your way to god otherwise would they not have stopped being offered For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all. It would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's nothing you can do, no sacrifice you can make to take away your sin. You're guilty before God. I am guilty before God. But that's where Jesus comes into play. In verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, We have been made holy, how? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all. Day after day, priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because his work is finished. And then what happens? And this is Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is you if you've called on Jesus. You are perfectly holy because of the work of Christ. While he is making you holy. So obedience for you and me is not from the outside hoping to earn God's approval. It's from the inside Christ creating something new in us. And so the call to obedience is a call to follow Jesus through the power He supplies. That's what obedience looks like for you and me. You don't have to be on the crazy cycle. Constantly trying to live up to the requirements because in Christ you've met the requirements. In Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, you see, you and I don't meet the standard, but Jesus perfectly meets the standard. Or, what you see in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you might be sitting here thinking, man, I can never be made right. I would say that your problem is not with yourself. Your problem is with your view of Jesus. Because all of those in Christ before God have been given His righteousness. And you cannot improve on that you have been made righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. Or, Romans 8, 1 puts it this way, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was a funny quote written by Warren Weersby. I think it's helpful here. And this is talking about dealing with sin and how Jesus gives the death blow to the source of our sin. Check this out. In a certain church, There was a man who always ended his prayers with, and Lord, clean out the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. One of the members of the church became weary of hearing the same insincere request week after week because he saw no change in the petitioner's life. So the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he interrupted with, and while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider. That's what Jesus has done. That is what Jesus has done. obedience for you and for me flow out of a relationship with jesus obedience flows out of a relationship not an obligation to the law this is what you see again and again in scripture in ephesians 2 8 through 10 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith That's that cry for compassion, that's that plea for mercy, leaning on the grace of God, saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. The doing follows a relationship with Jesus. Or, the picture that you have in John 15, and, and this is one of those that, would do us well to think deeply on. To meditate tomorrow morning when you're going to work or you're going to school, to think when you're trying to fall asleep at night. And it's the picture Jesus gives of a vine and a branch. And I want you to hear this. John 15:5. I am the vine, Jesus speaking. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Then in verse 8, this is to my glory, to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's what obedience looks like. It'll bear fruit that glorifies God. And then you see in verse 10 and 11, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to walk in obedience to God today. It's not a commitment to the law. It's a commitment to Christ. Jesus, who fulfilled the law, who has forgiven us of our sin, if we remain in him, we will bear fruit. How do you remain? You walk with him. You, you see this in Ephesians, where Ephesians 1 through 3 says, This is who you are in Christ. And then 4 through 6, this is how you live it out. You see it in Colossians. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And then you see put off and put on passages, the doing. You see this in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. You'll either walk by the Spirit or you'll walk by the flesh. Can't do both. But they always flow out of a relationship with Jesus. And here's the awesome news. In Christ, what Hebrews 10, 24 teaches us, what First John uh, chapter 2 and 3 teach us, is that we've already been made holy. And it says that when we see Jesus, we'll be like him for we will see him as he is. That's our destination. And so I want you to to hear this. A couple of weeks ago, Ava went to a game, and uh, you you don't do cash at the doors anymore. For those who haven't been to a basketball game lately, you do everything online. You purchase tickets online, and I think it's GoFan. And so uh, she sent me a text of the link. I, I do it on the phone, and I'm not... technology savvy. Uh, So I'm doing this and I'm hoping it works, right? Or else she's just going to be standing at the door and hopefully they take pity on her and let her in the game. But I I did it and I emailed it to her. Now, Ava could have got to the game and said, you know what? My dad has no clue how to do this. I'm going to stand out here. I'm going to do a little tap dance until people put enough money in this jar for me to buy a ticket and go in. The only problem is they don't accept cash. So that wouldn't work. There was no way to get in the game unless she was able to get a ticket. She didn't have any money. She didn't have her card at this time. She didn't have cash. How are you going to get in? She is reliant on someone getting her ticket. Well, thankfully, the, the thing goes through. She has the, the ticket receipt. They scan it. Boom, she goes into the game because her ticket was purchased. You and I get to go into the game because our ticket was purchased. and Not because we earned it, but because Jesus earned it for us. The price of our sin has been paid. You want to know where you see Jesus in Nehemiah 10? They take a vow, an oath. And if they can keep it, they'll be blessed. But if they don't keep it, guess what they are? Cursed. And they know this. They know that for the past hundreds of years, this has been the rules of the covenant. And yet they enter into it. And they disobey. And so guess what they deserve? A curse. You want to know what is awesome? In Galatians, it talks about how Jesus became a curse for us. Why was Jesus cursed? Because we couldn't keep the covenant. Why do we enjoy the blessings? Because Jesus took on our curse. That is the good news of the gospel. If you are here and you have never cried out to God to save you, what you will receive is mercy from Christ. You can be forgiven. Your holiness will be given to you by God because of what Jesus has done for you. And then the call, if that is a decision you have already made, then the call is to follow Christ. If you want to be obedient, it will be because you're in relationship with Him. Remain in Him and bear fruit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for gathering us this morning. Lord, I pray that you move. In this room, there are so many different people sitting in the pews. You have people who are struggling with sin, people struggling with hope, trying to figure out purpose, and Lord, you answer all of those questions. Father, I pray that you give boldness to the people who need to call out for grace and mercy, that they do it today, they don't put it off. I, Pray for those who are sitting here and their commitment to you has grown cold through the years. I pray that today they'll renew that commitment to remain in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we walk in obedience to what you have called us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.